There's a new pope, and he's from Latin America. Today, Wednesday, March 13th, from Public Radio International, the BBC World Service, and WGBH Boston, this is The World. I'm Marco Werman. The conclave elects Cardinal Bergoglio of Argentina to be the new pope. We'll hear what that means for the Catholic Church around the globe. And later in the program, a year in the life of a very special South African school. The pressure on the kids to succeed is intense. I mean, your family's future depends on you. And when you make a mistake, all comes crumbling down. Think of how many futures are you ruining. But this student brims with hope and ambition. I can get my family out of those shakes and buy them a proper house. Our school year series starts today, plus the push to grant new startup visas to foreign-born entrepreneurs. PRI's The World is brought to you by Medtronic, supporting the work of Wired International, providing medical and healthcare information and education in the developing world and in regions affected by war. Now on Facebook, look for Medtronic NCD. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The past few days have felt at times like a sporting event, an investment bank crisis, and a mysterious ritual all rolled into one. But at last, the world's 1.2 billion Catholics got the news they were anxiously awaiting. That was the start of the official announcement from the central balcony of St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican. And minutes later, the new pope appeared in the same spot. He's Jorge Mario Bergoglio, the now former Archbishop of Buenos Aires, Argentina. His new name as Pope is Francis I. Religion reporter Jane Little has been following the events in Rome today. She says that while Bergoglio wasn't considered a frontrunner this time around, his name rings a bell from the last conclave. We know quite a bit from last time because, quite frankly, he was widely seen as the runner-up to Ratzinger eight years ago. Um, And he was passed over then. And most people who've been doing profiles of popes this time round missed him. They thought, well, they didn't pick him last time. They're not going to this time. Um, But basically what seems to have happened is that people on the moderate and reform wing and those on the conservatives have coalesced around a candidate they, they see as a good compromise. He is seen to be um, a a man of simple and pure spirituality. He's from the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits. Um, He was uh, a man who shunned the trappings of a cardinal. He lives in a simple apartment, uh, does not have a chauffeur. He's seen to be a man Mm. of deep spirituality, also of keen intelligence, personal modesty. He is, of course, from Latin America. So that will be a huge bonus to many who said, it's time to move beyond Europe. Yeah, what does it say? percent of the Catholics are from Latin America. What, what does it say to you, Jane, that a man from Latin America has been elected pope? It says that geography came into it. Yes, he probably was a good compromise candidate in that uh, he is a man with Italian roots, by the way, uh, and parentage. He studied in Germany. Maybe that was just European enough to attract the Italians who have a lot of votes in the conclave. But it was also time. Many people were saying it is time to reflect the very different global face of 
Catholicism today. 1.2 billion Catholics in the world, 42% of them in Latin America. Big challenges facing the church in Latin America. Just yesterday we were hearing uh, on your programme about the challenges facing Brazil mm. and uh, the rise of Pentecostalism. That's something uh, he, uh, he's been working with. And he's also been someone who came through the church during the rise of the very controversial liberation theology movement. He was seen by conservatives as a bulwark against that, against its Marxist excesses, as they saw it. On the other hand, he was also seen as someone who will reach out to people of different persuasions. So I think he has emerged as the consensus candidate when people decided to come together and find somebody who would tick the geographic boxes, also the ideological boxes. But I think there'll be big questions over his age. He's 76. Benedict has resigned because he was too old to infirm. Some might be surprised that the cardinals chose someone who's only two years uh, younger than Benedict was when he was elected. Yeah, that is interesting. Does, uh, Does Jorge Bergoglio come with bona fides as a reformer, someone who can address and navigate through the myriad crises in the Catholic Church right now. Yes, uh, he has spent time in Rome. He's a member of a number of congregations. And I think what's emerged um, through this process this time round is that the cardinals really at the top of their list is reform. Now, what we mean by reform, uh, it's basically different things to different camps. But I think there's a, a widespread understanding that uh, the curia, the Vatican administration, the government of the church needs reform. We've had VatiLeaks revealing intrigue and corruption at high levels in the Vatican, some saying it's time time for a professional civil service in the Vatican and a proper separation of powers rather than a 17th century court that it is. Others saying it's time for really serious reform, uh, a, a, a sort of decentralisation of the church. So it will be interesting to see what might happen. And there's no real indication as to which camp Bergoglio is in. Um, but I, I, he's not seen as far on the reform liberal wing. He's not seen as very far on the conservative wing. So really somebody in the middle. Religion reporter Jane Little joining us talking about the election of the new pope. He is Argentine Cardinal Jorge Bergoglio, who will be known as Pope Francis I. Now to some of the day's other international news, starting with that very surreal story out of China you may have heard about, the one about thousands of dead pigs floating down the river that flows through Shanghai. I can't imagine what the reaction would be if that were happening here in the U.S. In China, anger is rising about this story. Chinese authorities say more than 6,000 dead pigs have now been hauled out of the Huangpu River. The river is a source of drinking water for Shanghai, a city of more than 20 million people. But officials say water quality there has not been affected. Still, people in the city are furious, according to the world's China correspondent, Mary Kay Magstad. Shanghai residents have said that the stench is terrible. Um, There have been city workers going around and scooping pigs out and loading them onto boats. Um, They say that things are more or less under control, that the number of pigs floating downriver now has decreased considerably. But already they've removed almost 7,000 pigs. 7,000 dead pigs, and that's not affected the water quality, Chinese officials say? Is is that really possible? Is that really possible? That's the big question. And in fact, online, a lot of Shanghai residents and others are expressing considerable skepticism, saying, "Okay, well, we're going to drink bottled water. But, you know, if you're saying the water's so safe, Shanghai officials, why don't you drink it first? Mm. Now, I gather the Huangpu River, it's a river that people apparently throw a lot of stuff, a lot of junk in that river, and it's not uncommon to see the odd animal carcass. Is that right? 
Well, people throw a lot of stuff into a lot of China's rivers. Um, you'll see, you know, certainly dead birds, occasionally a dead farm animal floating down. The Huangpu River actually runs right through Shanghai. Um, there's old Shanghai on one side, and there's Pudong, the new city, on the other side. Um, so it's a particularly unusual and dramatic thing when you have so many pigs floating down, you know, right in the middle of China's most cosmopolitan city. What are the latest theories about how this happened? Chinese demand for pork has increased so rapidly, it's like quadrupled over the last 30 years, that China has increasingly shifted from family farms to industrial farms. Now, the argument for industrial farms is it's more efficient. You can also make sure that all the pigs get immunized and you know that they're, they're loaded up with antibiotics. But the problem is that when a disease comes along that they're not immunized against, it can spread very quickly. So, Mary Kay, how have uh, Chinese been responding to this crisis? With concern and with derision, uh, particularly online. This one posting said, okay, well, here are some reasons why the pigs may have died. And so, mm. number one, the pigs were resentful of the antibiotics in their feed, so they collectively committed suicide by leaping into the Huangpu River. <laughs> number two, they were unwilling to drink the contaminated water offered by their owners, so they accidentally drowned while drinking the Huangpu River water. <laughs> Number three, they were unable to consume powdered milk from Hong Kong. A lot of Chinese parents go to Hong Kong to get powdered milk because they're afraid that the powdered milk they get in China has melamine in it. So the pigs went on hunger strike and died. <laughs> and number four, they suffocated trying not to breathe in the smog. You know, the main characters in George Orwell's uh, Ode Against Fascism and Communism Animal Farm were, were pigs. Any critics mention that yet? No, but I'm sure it's only a matter of time. Uh, one cartoonist did pick up on Life of Pi and instead drew a cartoon saying Life of Pig. <laughs> um, so there was Pi up on his boat and the pigs all floating past. And another well-known uh, satirist and cartoonist called Crazy Crab, who I've included in, in stories before, he showed pigs floating down the river and one of them was tagged political reform. Uh -huh. He tends to have a more of a political edge to his cartoons. Well, animals always good material for political cartoonists. The world's Mary Kay Magsat in Beijing telling us about the more than 6,000 dead pigs that have been pulled out of a river that flows through the center of Shanghai. Mary Kay, thanks. Thank you, Marco. And just today, a report comes out that says most people in the Asia-Pacific region don't have access to clean water. Peter Glick has been watching and writing about water trends in Asia for 25 years as head of the Pacific Institute in Oakland, California. Dr. Glick will get into the details of this report from the Asian Development Bank uh, in just a sec. But first, what's your take on the Chinese government's assertion that Shanghai residents should not be worried about their water supply, even though the source of it has been exposed to more than 6,000 pig corpses? <laughs> well, I think it's an indication of the failure of the government of China to really take water quality seriously. You can imagine what 6,000 dead pigs in a, in a river in the United States or in Western Europe would provoke in terms of a government response or in terms of public feedback. Water quality is a very serious problem. And many parts of Asia have failed to address the issue of water quality, and it's beginning to cause serious public concern. Well, a serious problem is exactly how the uh, report from the Asian Development Bank uh, kind of would characterize it. A couple of the big headlines, nearly 80 percent of Asia's rivers are in poor health. Two-thirds of people in the Asia-Pacific region have uh, no clean running water in their homes. We're talking countries, though, that run from Pakistan to China and Southeast Asia. That's a big patch. Still, what do they have in common when it comes to poor access to clean water? Well, of course, the Asia-Pacific region is a huge region, and it includes countries like 
Australia and New Zealand that have for a long time taken water and water quality pretty seriously, all the way to India and Pakistan and Bangladesh, very large population countries that are way behind in addressing both access to safe water and sanitation, but also things like environmental protection, water for industry. It's a region with very serious population problems and very serious water-related problems at the same time. You do have countries like China and India and Pakistan where the populations are just booming. And, you know, those countries often just don't have enough water for their booming populations and economies, one would think. Does the report tackle that? Is it supply or just plain bad management and poor infrastructure? Well, you know, the water problem is a combination of things. It's partly a supply problem, and it's partly a demand problem, and it's partly, as you note, a population problem. The The biggest problems occur in countries where populations are growing very rapidly and where natural supplies of water are either limited or, for example, in China, grossly contaminated. But the report does tackle all of those things. It talks about the need to enhance supply. But it also talks about the need to use the water that we already are using far more productively and efficiently than we use it. We could grow more food with the water we're already using in the region. We could clean up water supplies and make water that's too contaminated to use available to use. Uh, That's a good example of China's problem. Mm. Much of the water they have is contaminated and can't be used for industry or for drinking water or even for agriculture. You've been essentially conducting, uh, Dr. Glick, your own study of water resources in Asia for years now. What stresses or signs of progress are you seeing that this report from the Asian Development Bank either missed or played down? I guess the good news is, first of all, there's a lot more attention to water now than there used to be. Uh, In addition, we have made progress in providing safe water for a a vast number of people. Uh, Less progress has been made on the sanitation side. Uh, We understand the connection between water, energy, and food and climate together. And integrating those issues together helps us come up with solutions that we might not have thought about. And there is some progress being made in cleaning up water. (laughs) I mean, uh, setting aside the the dead pigs in, in Shanghai, there is progress being made on the environmental front as well. I think we're moving in the right direction. We just have to move a lot faster than we're moving now. Peter Glick, president of the Pacific Institute in Oakland, California. Thanks for your time. Happy to be with you. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. So let's say you're a foreign-born entrepreneur here in the U.S. You've got a great startup idea, a talented team, and real investor interest. Then you hit the wall. Your visa's expiring. It's an all-too-common problem for startups, but now there's momentum for a startup visa that would let foreign-born innovators stay and set up shop. Here's the world's Monica Campbell. It's happy hour, but we're not at a bar. This is a sprawling office space in San Francisco, an incubator for startups. It's nonstop work here, so a weekly in-house cocktail hour is one perk. Two entrepreneurs take a quick break. I'm James Richards. I'm 25. I'm the co-founder of Advisable, and we're here at The Hatchery, which is a co-working space in San Francisco where we work. I'm here with my co-founder, Michael. Uh, yeah, that's me. Uh, my name is Michael. I'm 29 years old. And I'm they the met in Indonesia, where Richards is from. Their startup is an online marketplace for lawyers. Will it work? It might. Richards is one of Columbia Law School's youngest ever graduates. 
he passed the New York bar exam at age 20. Co-founder Michael Smith is a programming whiz from Belgium. But there's the snag. His visa isn't certain, and it could force him out of the country soon. It's that period in between that is hard to tell what happens because we work best when we are physically in the same place. And because of this visa issue, we're going to be in different parts of the world. In a startup, I mean, you have to be together. You, the partners really have to be together. There's no way we'd be able to mimic this process remotely, and especially in the early stages when every minute is a New York minute. Silicon Valley has long pressed for change, and this year could bring effects. Support is growing for a new startup visa that would let foreign-born entrepreneurs work with fewer hurdles. Talks are on in Washington about safeguarding the visa against fraud and phony companies and ensuring that it would go to startup founders that look solid and might create jobs. Emily Lamb, with the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, is helping lead the push for the startup visa. I think that the entrepreneur community is very much willing to put some hurdles around it so that this is not just a visa that you can pay a lot of money and, and get one. Right now, there's bipartisan support for it, but the startup visa would likely get rolled into comprehensive immigration reform, and that path is unclear. Even though the path is still littered with minefields and at any point in time this whole immigration debate could get blown up by a number of issues, it is still absolutely the best opportunity to reform immigration, any piece of it that we've seen in the last five or ten years. Opponents say it's not fair for entrepreneurs to jump ahead of others already in long visa lines. Others say more effort should be made to support U.S.-born innovators. But advocates for the visa say that it would create jobs for immigrants and Americans. Ping pong, the sound of downtime at tech startups. We're at Cloudflare, which does hardcore programming to bulletproof websites from hackers. Its clients range from small companies to political groups around the world. Colombia, Israel, Palestine, a lot of that in the Middle East where there's a lot of unrest, where sometimes the fighting that is happening on the ground, you see the fighting go to cyber wars. Michelle Zatlin is Cloudflare's co-founder. She helped grow the company from three to 40 employees. Zatlin's from Canada and drove out to California after getting her MBA at Harvard. But then she started hitting a visa wall. My first attempt was it was denied. And so at this point, I had three months left. First, Zatlin's company, like any startup, was judged too small, considered high risk. Plus, as one of the company's founders, she couldn't sponsor herself for the H-1B skilled worker visa, one way foreigners try to get around this obstacle. To stay here, Zatlin actually had to become an employee of the company she founded, demoted to product manager. Right now, the United States is making it really hard for entrepreneurs to start companies in the United States. And I think that's a problem for the country. At the same time, Zatlin understands some of the reasoning behind the bureaucratic vetting process. It's hard to discern who's legitimate and who's not. I mean, the Immigration Service is not in the business of picking businesses that are going to (laughs) win. But there's worry that, for the first time, the number of immigrant-founded startups is declining because of the bureaucratic costs and uncertain weight. Startups can't afford visa limbo, so they're heading elsewhere, to countries that do more to roll out the red carpet for innovators. 
Here's Emily Lamb again. So Chile, for instance, offers $40,000 per entrepreneur. They'll actually give you money if you want to come here and start a business. There is one workaround that might help keep foreign innovators in the United States. Kind of. A company called Blue Seed wants to create a floating startup community. It'd be a vessel moored in international waters near California. No visa required. For The World, I'm Monica Campbell in San Francisco. I'm looking at some photographs right now that are pretty remarkable. They're of kids around the world, at home, showing off their favorite toys for the curious eye of an Italian photographer. I'm Gabriele Galimberti. I'm an Italian photographer. I'm 36, and I work in documentary photography. Two years ago, Gabriele Galimberti was on assignment. One day, he was watching a friend's daughter play with her gardening tools, and Galimberti got his idea. Whenever he flew someplace for work, he'd find a local family and their kids to show him some of their favorite toys. And at the end of my trip that was two years long, I visited 58 countries everywhere in the world, so in every single continent. His collection of photos is called Toy Stories. In it, you see the faces of proud-looking kids from Botswana, China, Albania, showing off their stuffed animals, toy cars, dolls, board games or wooden blocks. It's not the toys so much as the kids' expressions. They're priceless because you see a pride that no matter how little they have, whatever it is, it's precious. Sometimes Galimberti's encounters gave him access to family histories. Galimberti has fond memories of a group of kids in Zambia and of a little girl in particular. Uh, so her name is Modi, and she's from Kalulushi, a little village in the north part of Zambia. So I stopped by this village for a couple of days, and in this village, they, they didn't have almost anything, like no water, no electricity, and of course, no toys. But these children found on the road a little box full of sunglasses made in China. I don't know why. But from that moment, these glasses became their favorite toys. So all the children in this village wear the same kind of sunglasses, and they play a lot with this. And it was pretty fun to take this picture. We have a link to Gabriele Galimberti's photos at theworld.org. You'll need to jump and glide to answer our geo-quiz today. A few spins would probably help your score, too. We're looking for the city hosting this year's World Figure Skating Championships. The best skaters are there for the last big competition ahead of the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi, Russia. And this year, the Russian skaters are trying to get back onto the podium after a bit of a slump. So where's this place where the sequins are on and the skate guards are off? It's a Canadian city named after a British capital. That should help a little bit. And it's about halfway between Toronto and Detroit. Still not sure? Well, it's this guy's hometown. The Beaver. The answer is coming up later in the program. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, some young Dutch Muslims are going off to wage jihad. So who are they? Well, it's a wide range of uh, mainly boys, but also a few girls. And it ranges from very devoted Muslims to those who want adventure, who have the idea you live only once, you know, you have to go out there where the action is. 
WBRI's The World is brought to you by the Medtronic Foundation, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon or 10-mile run. Medtronic Global Heroes, application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Here in the Northern Hemisphere, it's already spring break in some school districts, but in South Africa, it's late summer. The school year there has just recently begun. Today and throughout this year, we'll be spending time at a high school in Cape Town, South Africa. It's a public school in an especially poor part of the city. Around the world, schools that serve underprivileged students face special challenges, and they offer tremendous opportunity. They provide an avenue out of poverty. While the school we're going to profile in South Africa has excelled, we want to find out how it succeeded against long odds and what lessons it might teach. That's what we'll be exploring in this year-long series. Today, we get an introduction to the school from the world's Anders Kelto. On the outskirts of Cape Town is one of the largest and most densely populated townships in South Africa. It's called Kailicha. It's a vast area of metal and wooden shacks. Garbage lines many of the dirt roads. In the middle of the day, men gather on a street corner to drink beer and call out to women passing by. This community was built during apartheid, when black South Africans were forced to live outside the cities. More than half a million people still live here. Crime, unemployment, and abuse are rampant. But just up the street, in a large cement courtyard, it's a very different scene. 500 students stand in matching blue sweaters, white collared shirts, and blue ties. They're here for the first day of school. They chat and hug and swap stories about their summer vacations. Then they form orderly lines and file into a school auditorium. They sit in rows of folding chairs. And once everyone's seated, a teacher stands and begins singing. Soon, the whole school joins in. It's an old South African hymn that inspired the national anthem. This school is a magnet high school that attracts many of Kailicha's top students. It's called the Center of Science and Technology, or COSAT for short. It's been incredibly successful. Most years, every single senior graduates, and 70% go on to college, despite the fact that most come from poor, uneducated families. The school's principal, Fadila Cooper, steps on stage to officially open the 2013 school year. Good morning, students. Wow. The wall is too small for all of us now. Yes. Mrs. Cooper begins the opening assembly by paying tribute to last year's graduates and reminding everyone of the school's record of success. Now we have a history of 100% pass rate. Now in 2012, we did not make that. But, she quickly adds, the one senior who did not pass will be retaking final exams in March. And that person will then restore our 100% pass rate again. It's obvious that academic achievement is taken seriously here. In fact, the whole community celebrates the school's success. Zoliswa Lonja, from a civic organization that's trying to improve Kailicha, 
tells the students that their community looks up to them. You are the chosen few. You are citizens of Kayelicha. So continue making us proud. Then it's time for the main event, a ceremony to honor the school's top academic achievers. Students with the best grades are called on stage to receive a handshake and a box of chocolate. Before each student is named, the tension builds. And in position number one, Bridget Ngidi. The message of the opening ceremony is clear. Students here are expected to do well, no matter what stands in their way. Or, in the words of the school motto, no excuses, just success. As the ceremony ends, the students spill out of the auditorium back into the courtyard. I catch up with Sisipo, a ninth grader with her hair pulled back in a tight ponytail. I ask her about the school's culture of success. In this school, there's a lot of competition because we're all very clever children and everyone wants to be at the top, but that also motivates us to work harder on our schoolwork. Why do you want to be at the top? It's nice because when we assemble, you get recognized and you get like a chocolate for your hard work. But the drive to succeed is about more than chocolate and recognition. Tandi is a 12th grader with a student government pin on her sweater and an endearing gap between her front teeth. She tells me that most of the kids here live in shacks that are falling apart with no running water and no toilets. Like, for example, I live in a place called Lloyd and the conditions there are really bad. You wouldn't believe it if you could see it. She says she wants to do well in school so she can get a good job. I can get my family out of those shakes and buy them a proper house. Being at a school like this means she'll have that opportunity. But it also means pressure. Tandi says her mother constantly mentions how she's counting on her to build them a better life. Tandi says that, like many students, she's terrified of failure. I mean, your family's future depends on you. And when you make a mistake all comes crumbling down. Think of how many futures are you ruining. That pressure can have tragic consequences. Last year, a 10th grade boy failed his final exams and was told he had to repeat sophomore year. The school's principal, Fadila Cooper, says she tried to comfort him. I explained to him that it's just a year that you're going to take longer to reach your goal. He nodded and seemed to accept what she said. But then he left the school and sent text messages to his brother and friends. And he told them that he had failed and he doesn't feel as if it is worth living. The boy committed suicide. As the new school year begins, his death looms over the school. I want you guys to go to page 37. And there's a fear that the pressure on students and teachers will be even more intense this year. That's because the school is growing, rapidly. The South African government, having seen the school's success, has forced it to expand from 190 students to 500 in just three years. That means more kids are getting a chance to learn here. But it also means the things responsible for the school's success are changing. The student-teacher ratio is rising. Instructors are teaching more classes and working longer hours. And perhaps most important, the standard of admission has been lowered. Again, the school's principal, Fadila Cooper. We are getting more and more of the learners who have not been prepared adequately. You know, they don't have the basics in maths and science. And some teachers worry these students will fail. But what if COSAT can maintain its near 100% graduation rate on a much larger scale? 
What if it can turn even poorly prepared students into scientists? If it can, a lot of people will be asking how and whether this model can be replicated in other poor communities in Africa and elsewhere. For The World, I'm Anders Kelto in Cape Town. And Anders Kelto joins us now. Uh, today's story, fascinating. It's just a start of what will be a year-long look at that high school, Anders. Tell us what's in store. What kind of stories can we expect in the months ahead? Well, I'm hoping to tell two kinds of stories. One that looks at the students themselves so that our listeners can really get to know these kids and know the, the challenges that they face in school and especially at home. I want people to be able to follow along with them over the course of the year and, and really feel like they're getting to know these kids. And then the second type of story is is about the school more broadly because there's a lot at stake with COSAT, the school that I'm spending a lot of time at. It sounds like a fascinating place. It seems really well-funded. Well, it was started by a couple of guys about 12 or 13 years ago as sort of a pet project, and then it grew they actually established a foundation to supplement the school's budget. And then it sort of went through this transition from being a, a private enterprise to a public one. It's now officially a public school, but it is still supported by an independent foundation. That foundation provides computers for the kids. It provides staff and a library. It's not unusual for kids in South Africa to pay tuition at public high schools. Is anybody paying tuition at COSAT? Students at COSAT don't have to pay any tuition. The only expenses that the students have are school uniforms and transportation. There's no school buses, so they have to pay for their own way to school or just walk. For students who can't afford a school uniform or transportation to school, COSAT does provide scholarships and small amounts of money that they give to the students each month to cover those costs for them. The account in your story, Anders, of the boy who took his own life, of feeling the pressure to succeed, I mean, that's an extreme case, but are all the kids at COSAT feeling some level of that pressure? You know, Marco, when I first got to COSAT, I was amazed by the school. It, all the kids seemed so happy. They seemed so excited to be there, and, and they really are. But as you dig a little deeper, you realize that they're under a lot of pressure. Some of it's coming from themselves, but a lot of it is coming from their families, because of the legacy of apartheid, most of these students' parents are not educated, many of them are unemployed, and they have pretty bleak lives. And they're looking to their kids as a way to succeed in the future. They're counting on their kids for a better future. And those kids really feel that pressure. Well, Anders, your year-long series on the world extends beyond the radio broadcast. You've already got a lot online, videos and slideshows from the school. You'll be blogging, too, I understand. Yeah, it's not just a radio series. It's radio and multimedia. We're producing some really nice videos and slideshows for the web, and I'm going to be keeping a regular blog. The blog is going to have a lot of little slice-of-life stories, photos, just fun little anecdotes that I come across every few days or a weekly basis. And we really want people to contribute to the blog. I want to hear back from people. I want to know from our listeners what students they want to know more about, what issues are important to them. We really want it to be an interactive thing with our audience. So I would encourage everyone who's following these stories to get on the blog and, and let me know what you think. And listeners, you can find out more and engage at theworld.org slash school year. If you engage with us and with the students and teachers at COSAT along with Anders, be sure to use the hashtag school year. Anders Kelto, the world's Africa correspondent, speaking with us from Cape Town. Thank you, Anders. We're looking forward to hearing more reports from the high school. Thanks, Marco. So did you have enough time to nail that quadruple jump? Yeah, me neither. 
We'll settle for the answer to our geo quiz, though. We're looking for the venue of this year's World Figure Skating Championships, and that would be the Canadian city of London, Ontario. Reporter Jane Armstrong is there. So the championships start today, Jane, and I gather everyone's focused on the Russian figure skaters. Why are these championships so important for them? Well, this is the last World Championships before Sochi next year in Russia, which is... For Russia, the most important games in decades, and it's a way for Putin to show the world that Russia is back on the world stage, not just in terms of sport and skating, but also as an economic powerhouse, as a country to be reckoned with. Its skating and its sports has suffered over the last two decades. And it's showing at the Olympics in 2010 in Vancouver was nothing short of humiliating. And he wants this show, Sochi, to be perfect. Now we're talking about uh, next year's Winter Olympics in in Sochi in Russia uh, on the Black Sea. But explain how figure skating could impact uh, the economy of Sochi and Russia. Well, figure skating, like the ballet and like classical music and literature is part of the Russian psyche and soul. They believe that they have a certain supremacy. And for years, there was no one who matched the artistic mastery, the technical brilliance under the Soviet Union. And they dominated the world for decades. And then after the Soviet Union broke up, and there was literally no money to pay for these programs, it gradually crumbled. And by the 2000s, other countries, North America, Asian skaters, went to the top of the heap. Well, I mean, that explains partly why uh, Russia's kind of fallen down as a skating powerhouse. But has there been nobody to kind of succeed like the Evgeny Plushenkos or the Irina Slitskaya's? No, there isn't. And in fact, the one skater, Plushenko, he's going to be 33 next year, and and he is not competing in these games here in London. In fact, there's a young skater who's come to take his place, but there is no single Russian star here. And I think the absence of a star here is what people are talking about. Yeah, along with skating, you also mentioned uh, ballet. Uh, we, we know the Bolshoi Ballet is in trouble right now. Literature, I, I can't remember the last time uh, Russia cranked out a book that captured the world. Why bank on skating? Because Russians love skating. A Russian skating star in Moscow is like a Tom Cruise. Many of them sit in parliament. They are well-known figures. They're recognized. And and people love them. And Putin is very determined to get that back. And he has poured billions of dollars into Sochi. It's costing $51 billion, the most expensive Olympic Games in history, even more than the London Games. He wants this to be perfect. How much of those billions of dollars that uh, are being poured into Sochi, has any of that money gone to training new figure skaters? Yes, there has been a considered effort since 2006, and especially since their dismal showing in 2010, when there was not one gold medal, Russian on the podium. Reporter Jane Armstrong in the Canadian city of London, Ontario, at the World Figure Skating Championships, which start today. Jane, thanks a lot. It's my pleasure. This is PRI Public Radio International.
I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Did you know the Netherlands has a terror threat alert system? Well, they do, and they raised the alert level today. The Dutch government says there's now a substantial threat of attack, just one notch below the highest level, critical. A statement from the Dutch National Coordinator for Security and Counterterrorism warned about one specific concern, the number of Dutch citizens who've been away fighting in Syria and elsewhere and are now returning home radicalized. Edwin Balker is director of the Center for Terrorism and Counterterrorism at the University of Leiden in The Hague. What kinds of people are attracted to go volunteer to fight in Islamic causes overseas from the Netherlands? Well, it's a wide range of uh, mainly boys, but also a few girls. And it ranges from very devoted Muslims to those who want adventure, who have the idea you live only once. You know, you have to go out there where the action is. So it's, it's a mixed group of people. Now, the the concern in the Netherlands was raised with with these uh, jihadists returning from Syria. Does that mean that they are Syrian emigres or their descendants or just very concerned Muslims? No, they're uh, mainly non-Syrian Muslims, many of a Moroccan background, because that's the biggest um, Muslim group in the Netherlands, but also Turkish people, people with a Kurdish background, Iraqi, you name it. So uh, some converts, some Muslim youngsters in general. Now, according to the Dutch government statement today, uh, the, the fear is that uh, these people become radicalized while they're away, but they've got to be pretty radical already to go do jihad overseas. Well, some are, but uh, we also know of a number of cases where these youngsters, let's say a couple of months ago, were hanging around together uh, on the street, maybe jobless, little criminals, um, who started to be interested in what's happening in Syria and that have been radicalized really in a couple of weeks. Uh, So it's not that profound, maybe. They just want to do something or they would just want adventure. They want to raise their status. They want to carry a gun. So not all of them I would describe as radical Muslims. Some are just uh, adventure seekers. I mean, fighting in a cause like the Syrian war is one thing, but what makes it plausible? Why has this alert been issued now that these people who go overseas and then come home would actually then want to attack their own government and their neighbors? Well, we, we don't, we're not sure if they come back and attack us uh, or the government, but the speed from, let's say, just a few people to now 100, it's the numbers that, that scare us, uh, the speed of the radicalization. And we know from past experience that If you have many people who have been out there in any fight, including sometimes Dutch military who've been in Afghanistan, that some come back being very traumatized, being aggressive, Uh, they can cause all kinds of problems. But if you, for instance, a lot of military, they come back and they get a lot of support. But these people go back uh, with lots of problems, maybe with a lot of aggression. uh, And that is something that uh, worries us. It didn't happen yet, but that is, uh, given past experience, something to worry about, in fact. Edwin Bocker, director of the Center for Terrorism and Counterterrorism at the University of Leiden in The Hague. Thanks for the insight. You're welcome. Finally today, a unique tribute to a man who's considered one of Spain's greatest flamenco singers of all time. Camarón de la Isla died in 1992, but he hasn't been forgotten. El Camarón is in regular rotation at my house, that's for sure. The world's Jerry Haddon tells us now about a new CD called Rumba de la Isla, where a Cuban musician pays tribute to the late flamenco great. Over the past couple of decades, a lot of artists have tried to fuse flamenco with other musical genres. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it's a disaster. Pedrito Martinez doesn't even try. 
Instead of the usual melding, he takes mere hints of the flamenco legend's music and makes it his own. So first, the subject of his homage, the late Camarón de la Isla. Now, here's Pedrito Martinez's take on the same song. It starts out sort of similar, but pretty soon Martinez drags it firmly into his own territory, Cuban rumba. This is a variation on the classic call and response in Cuban rumba, whose roots are in the Yoruba tradition of West Africa. This music is for dancing, for parties, which isn't to say it or Martinez's CD is frivolous. Respectful is more like it, extremely respectful. This song is called Straight Up Homage to Camarón. The lyrics are Martinez's. They say, We know that Camarón's voice opened the gates of heaven and that he's seated on the right side of God. Such reverence isn't surprising, says Celia Nur, a singer who teaches flamenco at the Berkeley School of Music's campus in Valencia, Spain. She says there are musical links between Cuban brumba and flamenco. Flamenco even has a subgenre called The Songs of Coming and Going, referring to Spanish musicians who emigrated to Cuba in the colonial period, then returned. Nur says artists in Spain today generally don't touch the legendary Camarón's work out of fear of failing to match his passion and charisma. She calls Martínez daring for trying. Honestly, she says, it took someone from outside Spain to take on Camarón's repertoire in this way because it's just too difficult for a Spaniard. Camarón's name carries so much weight, she says. He created something that is very hard to honor with your own music in a dignified way. This is what scares off so many Spanish artists. For Martinez, the CD also serves as homage to another isla, or island, his homeland, Cuba. He left on tour 15 years ago and didn't go back. He now lives in New York. The very first track on Rumba de la Isla is called, roughly translated, The Island That Witnessed My Birth. If I live to be a hundred, Martinez sings, I'll still remember her. For the world, I'm Jerry Haddon, Valencia, Spain. I'll definitely take a slice of this. That's our program today. Before we go, though, I want to remind you about the series we started today about a high school in an especially poor part of Cape Town, South Africa, and how it manages to succeed in giving its students a way out of poverty. You can go online to listen to our first story about the exceptional COSAT Magnet School. There's also a sweet video introduction to the school and pictures of the students, plus blog posts from our reporter on the story, Anders Kelto. He'll be following the students in South Africa all through their school year, which started just recently. That's all at theworld.org slash school year. And you can add your thoughts on Twitter. Just include the hashtag school year. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, 
I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for being with us. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org. The Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International.